Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Newt Bailey founder of Communication Dojo Workshops and consultant, trainer, and coach across industry. Newt, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Nice to be here. Newt, how do you describe the work that you do and and how did you get into it? I used to be a software engineer, ended up being the director of software engineering in the company where I was um, leading a team. And, you know, it's pretty successful. Lots of awards received by the company for the stuff that we were working on and things of that sort. But I ended up in fairly protracted conflict with a member of my team. Um, Started out as just, you know, some disagreements, but it kind of gradually got worse over time. I'd say it probably went for two years at least that, that I would call it a conflict. And astonishingly, when I think back, I didn't ask for help in that whole time. I just tried to solve things through dialogue with this guy and he and I between us didn't manage to resolve things we didn't have the required skills to do that somehow and I didn't think of it in those terms at the time I just thought of it in terms of that he was impossible and unreasonable nothing to do with my lack of skill but eventually I got to a point where I I realized that it really was getting in the way of work it probably had been for the whole two years but it, it increased over time so i went and asked for help from the human resources department and someone who wasn't heavily trained as a mediator but said yeah i'll mediate a conversation between the two of you and um so we met up with her one afternoon for two or three hours and by the end of that conversation i'd gone in basically feeling like i didn't really trust myself to be alone in a room with this guy um, I'd got to the point of imagining there could be even a violent outburst on his part, physically violent even. Probably not true at all, but that's what I was imagining. But by the end of that two or three hour mediation, I was in a place and so was he where we could work well together again. And for the remainder of the time that I was in that company, we we worked perfectly well together and we went on to be friends since then. And, you know, we meet up periodically uh, to catch up. So it was kind of amazing. What I realized was, oh, Something happened in there that he and I had not managed to do without the presence of a mediator. What was it exactly? What did we not know all of this time? And I felt kind of a little bit embarrassed. It had taken me so long to seek help when the help had been so effective. But when I quit that job, I started training to be a mediator. Uh, This was back about 13 years ago. And in a sense, almost by chance, I started working uh, with a couple of trainers who were mediation trainers and mediators who were working with a, a system that has the name nonviolent communication, a name we can talk about more in a moment, I'm sure. And so from there, I went on to be a mediator. I went on to uh, be mentored by one of those trainers so that I started uh, taking over for him when he was out of town doing uh, intensive trainings out of town. And so I ended up becoming a trainer and a facilitator and coach of communication skills and mediation skills, and then moved forward into other kinds of coaching, leadership skills, and helping with people with career decisions and other other areas of coaching. So 
And that's what I do now. Now I do uh, coaching with private clients, coaching in organizations and uh, public trainings, training in organizations and uh, similarly with mediation, mediation inside of organizations or with private clients. So One thing I struggle often is, uh, and I find other people too, is when they first get into nonviolent communication, they're sort of really taken aback by how powerful it is, but they struggle to communicate that to other, how powerful it is um, and really make it concrete for people. And so I'm curious how you sort of define define what it is and, and what about it is so powerful. And maybe one way of doing that might be to, if you could go back to when you were experiencing this, you know, the story you told us about experiencing this conflict with the client where you didn't have the, the requisite skill sets, like what do you know now that you didn't know then that w- would have made such a big difference? Which is like, what is the crux of what the skill set is and how it manifests? It's interesting because I suppose um, describing the skill set and describing the crux might not come out as the same answer, but let me just let me just uh, play with a couple of answers. One way of describing what the work is about is to say that human beings have things which are fundamentally important to them, fundamental motivations, values, uh, sometimes you might say needs, uh, although that can be a controversial word, but you know things which are important to people and motivating them, and that remains true when they are in conflict with each other. People who are screaming at each other or shout, uh, um, shooting at each other or whatever it might be, there is something motivating them that is, in my experience and in the philosophy of nonviolent communication, is pretty fundamental. Like people want respect or they want to be understood or they want to be able to survive space to uh, have a livelihood, whatever it might be. So uh, there are many other words we could put to the fundamental motivations of people, but that's at the core of the work in a certain way is that if we can understand and connect to what's motivating each other fundamentally, then we will understand each other on a different level than just understanding, oh, so you want me to do what? You know, just to understand what the person is thinking, what they're thinking I should do, I shouldn't do, what they're thinking is wrong with me. If all I do is judge them and hear their judge me and so on, then uh, I'm missing the underlying motivations and they don't get to hear my underlying motivations. And those mo- underlying motivations are so universal, you know, love and spontaneity and, and financial security or security of whatever kind and self-expression, creativity, meaning, purpose. Um, empathy, things like this are so universal that as soon as you start to hear each other's fundamental motivations, you start to see yourself in each other. You're like, oh, yeah, I want that too. I want respect too. That's what I'm fighting for. Oh, you're, you're fighting for respect too? You don't feel like you're getting respect from me? I don't feel like I'm getting respect from you. So suddenly there's this possibility of commonality emerging from even really intense conflicts and certainly I've helped with some fairly intense conflicts. Marshall Rosenberg traveled the world and went to places that were war-torn and helped people who were actually in the process of shooting at each other. So he's used exactly the same methodology in extremely serious conflict situations. The big thing which stood out in that particular case, myself and, and uh, my friend who at the time was my, my uh, direct report who I was in conflict with, we met up about 18 months uh, after I had left uh, that company. And I, by that point, I'd probably been in training with this work, nonviolent communication, for about nine months. And, and I contacted him and said, hey, can we meet up and have dinner and talk about that whole thing and you know, see if there's anything still that could be ironed out or understood about what went on there? And he said, sure. So we met up 
And I just started out and said, just tell me everything about that conflict from your point of view. Like, what, what was going on for you at the time? And he, so he just started to tell me, you know, the things he was thinking, the things that he didn't like about what I was saying or doing and so on and so forth. And I just used the skill that I'd been uh, learning for nine months, which is the school of uh, the skill rather of um, listening with great focus and curiosity about the underlying motivations of the person that you're listening to, which I had never really done somehow, not on, not on that kind of scale or in that depth when I'd been his boss. And so we, he just talked and I listened and periodically I'd check. So are you saying this? Am I understanding this piece correctly? And just rolled forward. We were unpacking two years of, of difficulty with each other, um, whatever pieces we hadn't already figured out. And at some certain point, he interrupted the conversation. He said to me, you know, in a certain way, the big summary would be, if you'd been able to listen to me back then, the way that you're listening to me right now, I think the whole situation would have been very different. And it became very clear to me as I thought about that at the time and subsequently that I was considered to be a pretty good communicator, you know, within the workplace. I'm not sure that my intimate partners over the years would say the same thing. In fact, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't. But within the workplace, I had a pretty good reputation as a communicator for the most part. But what I realized was that I could, I, I had that reputation because I did know how to listen with a lot of focus to what people were saying and really try and understand it. But I had a blind spot if the person was coming at me with blame, accusation, judgments, anger, or what appeared to be anger to me. Uh, my blind spot was that then my ability to listen to them no longer existed, really. I could no longer listen to them in the same way, with the same kind of depth of focus and so on. And so all the time that I really thought that I was hearing him out and seeing his point of view and his perspective, it turned out that I really wasn't. I was really making up my own story about his perspective and kind of seeming like I was listening, but not really. And so that's not a basis for useful communication. It's a basis for inefficiency at the very least and probably disconnection and conflict which is exactly what happened so that's one of the key pieces is the listening piece one of the three pillars or the three skills of the work and the other two or one of them is just about how do you express yourself when you're giving voice to your point of view how do you do that and you could you could describe that in terms of what you don't do you kind of give up on on judging other people good and bad right and wrong Condemning other people, accusing people, blaming people, making demands on people that are not, well, we could say more about it. There's a place for demands sometimes, but not just constantly commanding and demanding all of the time because those things diminish uh, well-being in a relationship and goodwill in a relationship. So it's, that's a lot of what you don't do. So what do you do? Well, you express yourself in, in not just your thoughts about the situation, your beliefs and your shoulds and your opinions and your and your judgments and so on. But you start to incorporate these other four components of, you could say, of thought or of speech. One is, what are you actually observing? What have you heard? What have you read? What data have you looked at? And in the case of, you know, data, how are you interpreting that data? That's kind of part of it. You're observing the data, but how are you interpreting it? And then what's the impact on you? Very often, the impact is an emotional impact. So are you frustrated? Are you nervous? Are you excited? Are you uh, angry? Just telling yourself the truth that as a human being, you do have an emotional reality. And even though for some of us, it might be very buried, 
but it's in there and most people can notice whether or not whether or not they're at least happy or sad or afraid uh yeah maybe those are the major ones right mad sad glad and, and afraid so starting from that how are you feeling and then what are your underlying motivations that's the third thing to give focus to. And then uh, do you have any specific requests to ask of the other person that they can understand and will be doable and measurable and, and you know, time sensitive if relevant to the, and so on. So that's the thing. Those three skills of uh, oh, I just realized I only mentioned two of the skills, uh, the skill of empathizing with others, listening with great focus to others and expressing oneself in the way I've just described, including observations and feelings and needs and requests. And then the other skill is the skill of what might be called self-reflection, self-awareness, self-connection. And that is really, I believe, 90% of the work. It's like you actually being curious enough about yourself to notice what your opinions are, what your uh, thoughts are, and then also what you've actually observed, what your feelings are, what your underlying motivations are, and what requests you have. And actually having that be a practice that you don't go around like not noticing that you're angry when everyone else is noticing that you're angry or not noticing that you've become a little bit sharp edged because something's scaring you or upsetting you in your life and you're taking it out on people at work or something like that, that you would actually notice that that's going on. You'd be able to walk into a room and say, hey, everyone, I'm in a bad mood, just so you know. Um, you don't go in there not even realizing that you're in a bad mood. So that's that's a quick overview of the the skills quickly said and i have to say people take multiple year-long programs on this work because they realize that once you start thinking and speaking in this way the journey just goes on and on probably for a lifetime you know so and that's why you call it the communication dojo the workshops that i do i call them uh, communication dojo in part because of that idea that just like a martial art that would be practiced in a dojo yeah to become masterful at it is a life's work and and probably I imagine I, I've never got to that stage in a martial art that even when you are considered by everyone to be the best of the best, you know that there's more that you could learn probably or, or more skill you could get in teaching others or something like that. So there's there's no end to it. And that is part of the reason. And the other part of the reason for calling it dojo is just being inspired by the martial art of Aikido, which shares the philosophy in a certain sense of this work, which is in Aikido, can you can you neutralize an attack, a physical attack, without doing damage to the person who is attacking you, but but without allowing them to continue to attack? And also, uh, so no one theoretically, no one gets harmed, you know. And that's the that's the aspiration in that in that uh, martial art, as I understand it. And with nonviolent communication, it's a similar thing. If you start to attack me verbally, I'm not going to defend myself by attacking you back ver verbally. But I'm also not just going to uh, lie back and have you trample all over me. Um, with words and with opinion and so on. I'm going to stand up for myself, but I'm also going to be simultaneously very interested in what it is that's motivating you to say those things, you know, so, so that we can try and figure it out and solve it. So to, uh, to summarize a little bit, the three elements of, of a nonviolent communication or places in which it manifests are uh, the communication you have with yourself, you know, self-connection, the communication you have with others, you know, expressing yourself to, to others, uh, and then um, how you interpret others' communication towards you. And the uh, MVC framework, which we'll go deeper into, but at a high level is, you know, observations, feelings, needs, requests. And is it fair to sort of say that, you know, a lot of our um, conflicts comes from, you know, harmful communication that we that we give to others or the way we interpret others. 
And the NVC process is sort of like container or like training wheels so that we say like there's no to reduce friction in our communication with others and to interpret uh, others communication with uh, what their true you know feelings and needs are so that we can most effectively you know help them meet their own needs or how would you sort of you know tie it in a bow to what I would just discuss well you you included quite a few different things in the question there and I think I'd broadly agree with everything that you said yeah there's so much that we do that makes the likelihood of misunderstanding or inefficiency of communication or even you know disconnection and conflict and by disconnection i mean that we end up in a situation where we're no longer really interested in what each other is saying you know we we understand that we disagree maybe and we understand what we think is wrong about the other person's position or about the other person as a human being but we're not really paying attention to each other anymore so so connection has disappeared and as, as connection diminishes and disappears, conflict starts to come along, you know, something which people would describe as a conflict. And there's so much that we can do that increases the likelihood of those unfortunate, not very enjoyable ways of communicating with each other. One of the obvious ones is if you want to exist in a world where the people around you all seem to be rather defensive, you know, you, you sometimes can hear people, I've worked with people, they say, you know, I just don't get it. People are so thin-skinned. They're so defensive all the time. I don't know why I have to surround myself with people like that. And they're missing the fact that if you go around basically evaluating people, assessing them as good or bad, judging them, and using, you don't have to use the word good, bad, right, wrong. You can use the words respectful, disrespectful, appropriate, inappropriate, smart, stupid. You know, there's so many kind of polarities of language which can be used to describe people and judge people. And if you do that as a matter of course, and our minds tend to do that very naturally, we've been raised in a in a society, many or most of us, where judgment is just common currency. You know, judging each other is, the, is what people do. So our minds are really geared towards that. If you go around, though, with that as your habit, then unsurprisingly, the people around you will display defensiveness a lot of the time because that's what many or most human beings do when they feel they're being negatively assessed they they want to protect themselves um, they become defensive and of course that has i believe ancient evolutionary reasons behind it you know if you start getting assessed by the band that you belong to the tribe you know as not being good enough anymore banishment was a fairly common thing you'd just be kicked out if you weren't killed and then you're out with the wild animals you know fending for yourself and that probably means you're not going to survive for very long so it's a natural thing for people that they will become self-protective and defensive if they if they sense that they're being assessed as less than as unworthy and so on so you know if i just make the decision as i did 13 years ago to basically question those judgments and figure out what's underneath them you know what i understand what i'm judging you as but what is it that i want you know how am i feeling about the situation and so on what if i observe what requests do i have of you if i make that switch then when i'm around you you're just less likely to be in a place of self-protection and defensiveness because i'm not i'm not fueling that in the way that i talk to you um, and so suddenly i can have the experience of living a life where very few people around me are defensive but they might be consent, considered defensive by someone else who 
judges them and blames them for things, but around me they're not, right? So I, suddenly I'm living in a different world because of how I choose to think and question my own thoughts and how I choose to give voice to what's going on in my mind, you know? We're sort of touching on some of what I think to be the underlying principles of, of nonviolent communication that, you know, for some people when they first see the framework, you know, observations, feelings, needs, requests, they say, oh, that sounds pretty obvious. But I want to say these, um, these principles that, that, and I want to hear your, you know, I want to you un unpack them a little bit and hear where you agree or where you would rephrase if at all. So one is that, um, you know, that stimulus, and this isn't unique to NBC necessarily, but that stimulus is not the cause, or we separate stimulus and cause, um, and we take responsibility for our feelings and our actions. And one person's actions can make, you know, Newt feel a certain way and can make me feel a totally different type of way. That, that's one thing. The other is that language is more of a dynamic than static thing. And so I, I don't think NBC uses the, like, the to be phrase, or like, you know, Newt is this way, or Eric is this way. And yet we do that, you know, all the time today. The other is that, you know, in contrast to sort of Hobbesian state of war or a lot of, you know, or, or even like original sin, NBC believes that humans are, you know, naturally want to contribute to each other's well-being uh, and we're educated out of it or educated to be violent rather than naturally violent. And, you know, as such, punishment and reward isn't a great way to to motivate people to do the behavior, you know, we, we wish to seek and thus, you know, might work short term, but does, doesn't work long term. It's important for people's reasons to, to matter. And so, and the implications of that are that, you know, we wouldn't, you know, use shame, blame or guilt to to motivate people and thus maybe wouldn't have prisons or, or maybe they'd look vastly different. But I'll sort of pause there. I know, I know that's a bunch. How would you unpack or rephrase or edit or add to some of those being underlying, like philosophical beliefs? Well, at the risk of just repeating things that you've already said, I mean, essentially, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with everything you've just said. Like, and I like you said, you know, oh, observations, feelings, needs, requests. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think I already do that. Of course, I already do that. That's often the response to this. And then you second, the second you get into a conversation with someone and have them talk about a problem they're having with someone else in their life, those things are not the primary things which are being spoken. You know, needs hardly get mentioned or really thoughts, judgments, etc. Uh, take um, the driving seat. And then people might refer to feelings. Uh, a little bit, but often in ways which really don't describe their most truthful expression of their feelings. Uh, observations get blended with judgments and so on and so forth. So yeah, there's uh, an apparent simplicity to the model and, and there is like a, in a certain sense, a lack of complexity to it. I actually originally am a, you know, a mathematician and, and uh, my degree is in physics. Um, so I like simplicity in a certain way, you know, a simple set of ideas that can describe a lot of different circumstances and be used in a lot of different circumstances. So I think that's why Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication, tried to simplify as much as possible these these components. And that, that makes it sound easy potentially and makes it sound trivial. But once you start getting into it, you find that it's extremely versatile. And like I say, kind of the, the depth of it goes on and on in terms of how it affects our understanding of reality. So Taking the first thing you said, stimulus is not the same as cause. That's huge. Um, the notion that if two people are waiting in a cafe for two different friends and uh, they're two separate people and uh, the, the, by chance they had the same agreement, they would meet their friend at 7 p.m. And uh, it's now 7.30 p.m. and they're both sitting there. They don't know each other. They're both just sitting there waiting for a call from their friend or a text or something or for their friend to show up. And they're in completely different emotional states. 
Each of them has had the same experience in a sense, but one of them is actually quite relieved and happy, and the other one is verging on angry. Now, can we say, therefore, that the a friend not showing up for half an hour to a to a meeting and not texting or calling to explain their uh, lateness is the cause of the emotional state of those two people? I would say no. There's clearly something that's about the individual, the different circumstances of the people who are doing the waiting. In the one case, maybe the person had some work to finish and they were kind of feeling bad that they were going to have to go home and do it at midnight after seeing their friend. And this extra half an hour has given them this chance to send some really crucial emails. And so they're feeling quite relieved and happy that their friend was late. In the other case, it's someone who's really questioning the friendship with this person and and worried about you know the state of their friendship and sense that the, their friend doesn't have respect for them and so on and so they're going into a place of anger because once again they've got a, an unmet need for for respect in this particular situation you know with this friend so you could say that depending on what the person in the in the how the person in the in the coffee shop waiting is interpreting the situation will generate their feelings you could say how they're thinking about it you could also say what the underlying needs are for them in the moment that are really up the one person wants time and space to do some work and they got it so they're happy the other person's wanting respect and they're not interpreting what what's happening as respect so therefore they have a different emotion of irritation or anger or something like that so yeah but to say this to anyone including to the the people listening to this podcast it's so quick to say, yes, yeah, someone stimulates your feelings, but they don't cause them. Oh, very often people will say to me, oh, yeah, they do. You know, like my girlfriend, she totally knows how to cause me to be angry. She knows where my buttons are. And I say, yeah, but she didn't put them there. So the buttons had to be there in order for her to push them. And also your degree of self-connection, you could say self-control, maybe. I'm not sure if that's a word for it. Your own kind of uh, degree of familiarity with your own buttons and understanding about what they what they are and what they're not and so on. Your history, your psychology, which side of the bed you got out of this morning, um, how things are going at work, you know, whether your stocks just went up or down. Like all of those things are playing into your anger arising in the moment. It's just not realistic to say what my girlfriend just said to me is is the reason for me to now be in this state of anger. It's a fiction. So yeah, that, what what the girlfriend just said is the stimulus. Sure, it's the it's the thing which triggers in the moment the anger to 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 come into existence. But it's not the cause. To suggest it's the cause is to suggest that it's the sole cause. The cause is that whole mishmash of things that I just listed and more. Um, so yeah, that's a huge point. And and once you give up on that as being true then you no longer hold yourself as being the cause of other people's pain or anger or fear. But that doesn't make you suddenly unconcerned about it. If anything, I feel much more able to be responsive to other people's pain or fear, even if they are blaming it on me, because of the fact that I'm not going into some sort of shame or self-blame spiral about it. I'm able to just remain open-minded, open-hearted, receptive, to whatever they're going through so we can understand each other and, and do something about it so it's a massive massive idea um and you said language is dynamic and yeah so that idea of uh, one way to diminish friction and conflict in your life is to give up on using the verb to be in connection with a human being so you no longer say you are dot 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 uh, or you were 
or you will be like all the different forms of of to be get can be just set aside it's not entirely practical because you know you are sitting on my cell phone is yeah. is perhaps <laughs> just true right and so sometimes you've got to got to do it but in general if you're using it as language you are lazy you are pathetic you are oversensitive you are insensitive these kinds of things you're just labeling in a person a person and Marshall Rosenberg used to say, uh, you label a person and you put them in a box. And I am talking about a coffin. Um, he would say that to attach a label to a person effectively is rendering them dead to you in a certain way. They're just this dead thing that you've decided that they are. There is no dynam dynamism. There is no change now for you. They're just that thing. So you've sort of, it's extreme way of saying it. He was very fond of saying things in fairly extreme ways, but yeah, it's a kind of killing of them in a certain sense inside of your own mind rather than uh, allowing for them being a living being who changes from day to day maybe and, and might be different next week than this week and uh, or next hour than this hour, that kind of thing, yeah. And just to touch on there for a second, some people, um, you know, may ask about like, does that mean NBC is, you know, moral uh, sort of, you know, engages moral relativism? Like, is there a right and wrong? Or, or does NBC there, say there is right and wrong? It's just not super effective to use those terms because people are always going to debate what right and wrong are. Or how do you think about that? Yes. Well, my my training in NBC has never said to me, oh, it's it's right for people to murder each other or it's no more right than it is wrong. I mean, I think there's other ways of, de of um, defining moral relativism like you know the the shift of moral values from one culture to another and that kind of thing but if we're talking about that thing of like oh there is no right or wrong or we're not holding someone as, as wrong just because they killed someone or did some other kind of violent crime nbc isn't kind of getting into that debate that's all you could say about it it's not it's not trying to suggest that we just turn a blind eye to to antisocial behaviors that are doing damage or even Killing others, not by any means, is that the is that the philosophy of nonviolent communication. However, it is pointed out that uh, punitive justice, the the kind of justice where if people offend, they break the laws, they get punished. There's lots of research out there about the recidivism rates in prisons. You know, your person gets punished, and and often while in prison, they learn to be a better criminal, or they just become more hardened because you have to harden yourself to survive in prison. And then they come back out and they reoffend. And so society didn't become more safe by having them in prison. Or I suppose you could say if they were imprisoned forever, then uh, society somehow would be safe from them. But that doesn't work out too well either, because both because of the cost and also because of the cost to society of people having their mothers and fathers put behind bars so now they're not parented and this kind of thing so it's a big it's a big thing that can be um, is worthy of lots and lots of uh, discussion but the point being this when you compare it with for example uh, there's a system that the trainer of nonviolent communication called Dominic Varta set up a, a parallel system for youth justice in a, a southern province of Brazil I forget the name so youth offenders could decide whether or not they wanted to go through the usual punitive model or go through this other restorative justice model that shared a lot of the philosophy with nonviolent communication. And at the time when I took a training on that, which was years ago now, but he announced that up until that point, and the program had been running for some years at this point, not a single person who'd gone through the restorative justice process reoffended, because the the 
restorative justice process was one where they got to learn and understand what the impact was of, of the crimes that they'd committed. And they got to meet the people that they'd committed the crimes against or the families of those people in the case of someone that they might have killed and just be faced with the humanity of the other person and, and the, and the, and the so-called so receiver of the crime, you know, the receiver of the action, the, the person who would uh, in typical language be called the victim would get to meet the, the person who in typical language would be called the perpetrator and see their humanity, see what was driving them to commit the crime and see what their circumstances were. And so was the was the concept of moral rightness and moral wrongness made use of in that model? No, it wasn't. That wasn't what they were doing. They were saying, tell me about what on earth caused you to do that. Like, what was motivating you to do that? And and what did you do afterwards? And after you'd killed my husband, or this kind of thing, it's just like a whole different conversation with very different outcomes. And my understanding is if you look at statistics on restorative justice versus uh, the punitive justice model, you see that in many different countries. Uh, I know in Scotland, there's a restorative justice system for youth offenders, too, that's been in place for many years and, uh, and is very effective. So, yeah, it's not about dispensing with consequences for actions that are harmful. It's not about just saying, oh, yeah, we're just permissive. We're just going to let, let that stuff happen. No, not at all. It's about caring about the safety of all and therefore not just allowing someone to stay on the streets if they are committing acts of murder, but also not putting them into a punitive model that will make them more dangerous, either more dangerous in prison or more dangerous when they come back out of prison. It's about re-education. It's about, it sounds rather sister, doesn't it, an Orwellian or something, but it's about teaching people that, you don't have to hurt someone else to get empathy. Uh, many people commit violent crimes because it's the only time that they get anything that feels like this person understands the pain that I've been through in my life. I can see it in their eyes. As I'm hurting them, I can see that they get what, I, what I've been through. And it's this thing where unconsciously and unknowingly, the person is desperate for understanding of the life that they've led and the upbringing that they had. And violence is a sort of one way of trying to get that understanding. For example, this is just one of many um, strange things that become apparent when you start to look at people's underlying motivations. So, yeah, helping people to understand that. I, for 18 months, some years ago, I volunteered in San Quentin to teach these skills to uh, mainly life prisoners uh, in San Quentin. And that endeavor continues to this day. There are many, many other voluntary efforts going on in San Quentin to help people to learn a different way of being and and see the the, the uh, kind of impact that their crimes have had on on real people you know and people are very changed by a number of men in San Quentin who are very very changed by the work that they've done what else would be different if NBC people ruled the world I, I feel I'm tempted to mention in passing a, a blog called The Fearless Heart uh, written by my colleague Mickey Cashtan and she does a lot of thinking and writing about this. In fact, I think she's written a book or two about what the world would look like if this philosophy of life, which is a philosophy of compassion, a philosophy of, yes, using force to protect ourselves, but not using force as aggressors over each other, not using force to steal from each other, not using force to uh, you know, do damage to each other, but only using force to kind of protect 
each other. So yes, imprisonment, if imprisonment is the only way to keep society safe, but that imprisonment is a compassionate imprisonment, uh, maybe like the kind of imprisonment you read about in, uh, where is it, like in, in Denmark or somewhere, where you look at their recidivism rates and they're so low compared with America, and yet the their judicial system and their prison system would be considered you know, super lightweight. I mean, there's no cells, you know, and people get to hang out and watch TV and they have conjugal visits with their partners. And and yet the crime rates are so much lower and people don't recommit a lot of the, a lot of the time. So things like that would be in place a lot more. It's a, it's a, it's a huge question, but I think this, you know, a part which is dear to my heart is that management training in organizations would be such that when you take on the role of manager, it's explained to you really early on, this doesn't now make you a better human than the humans who report to you and um, or the humans who are lower down than you in the corporate hierarchy that you're in. This just means that you've now assumed certain responsibilities that you didn't have before, like responsibility for turning the people who report to you into leaders themselves, you know, that's now part of your responsibility that it wasn't before when you were not in that position. Um, and you maybe have responsibility for much larger amounts of money or property or something like that. And so perhaps we therefore uh, compensate you differently because we want to reward you for what you're bringing in. That's a whole big issue. Like the issue of money is a bigger discussion, but what, what so often happens in fast-growing companies especially is that people get promoted into management positions because someone's got to be the manager, you know, you've got to have uh, within a hierarchical system. There's got to be someone kind of helping to direct other people's efforts and so on within that way of governing organizations and companies. But they don't get trained in what I'm talking about. So they do kind of make up this story about what it means to be overseeing other people. And the story is based upon whatever examples they've seen before and their own personal philosophy and so on. And it makes for just, I mean, when you read the stats on how much time and hence money is lost in American business through conflict. I think the most recent study I read uh, gave the numbers $238 billion a year or something like that as a result of uh, conflict within companies, between people in companies. And whether that number's correct or, you know, let's divide it by 10. It's still quite a lot of money, right? And and maybe it's actually 10 times that much. Who knows? But so much could be made more efficient and more effective if people learned ways of communicating that just are more effective and learned ways of communicating that are, you know, learned which of the ways are that are less effective and were able to see and witness uh, for themselves, the ones that they do. I actually sometimes give a list of, of communication choices to people that are uh, often not the most uh, effective ways to to engage with another person. And I just say, do you recognize yourself in any of these? And people will start nodding their heads and going, oh, yeah, unrequested advice. Yeah, I do that all the time. You know, the second anyone starts to express any kind of discomfort or pain in their lives, I go straight to telling them what they need to do about it. And often I've not even listened to them for long enough to know exactly what their problem is. I'm just kind of projecting onto them that I understand what they're going through and what they need to do. Uh, so I could totally uh, uh, replace that with more attentive listening and then maybe move to advice and suggestions once I'm really clear that I've understood and they've told me that I've understood that kind of idea. 
So yeah, that's that's another piece. The whole governance of organizations and companies would would change significantly, I think, in the whole realm of collaboration. Not pretending by any means, by the way, that conflict is therefore avoided or something. Uh, conflict is part of human life, it seems. But not knowing how to navigate through conflict skillfully and mindfully and effectively, that just changes the whole thing. You know, now it's not just conflict, it's conflict that's being mismanaged or mishandled. And uh, that's a very different story. So, Yeah. So a few directions I want to go with there. One is, why is it so important that people not just, you know, do the behavior, you know, change their behavior, but also change the reasons for their behavior in terms of like, why aren't shame, blame, guilt, pretty effective ways of, uh, of motivating people? Well, I think shame, blame and guilt, let's look at it like, given that those are not very enjoyable experiences for people to, to be feeling shame, to be feeling guilt, to be uh, having their sense of self-worth diminished through blame, for example, the people will fear those things happening. So now you're managing to kind of rule by fear, which sounds all a bit medieval. But, like, uh, you know, like was Machiavelli wrong? Or not as yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Like you can become super effective, right, uh, within certain contexts by just having lots of people, fearful people around you. And we hear, I don't know, of course, I wasn't there, but the, the stories we hear about Steve Jobs throwing chairs at people in meetings and this kind of thing. But he's a hero of industry as well at the same time. You know, so many people are using products that he was in, instrumental in the creation of, right? So, but he's a sort of, exception i think in term well i don't even know if he's an exception but it, it's it's like this right you can rule with fear and people do what you tell them to do okay and then you have success so you make a bunch of money and so then people can say oh yeah the reason that that company's successful is because the guy in charge or the woman in charge rules with fear and just you know gets everyone in line because they're scared to step out of line and then you hear about these other companies that are very successful that don't run along that principle at all, but they're also successful, you know, and they have all of these different ways of engaging that, that are very respect driven and, and trust driven and uh, driven by effective communication and collaboration and so on. And you, you hear about companies, you've got the, the no, you'll have to bleep it out or something, but the no, the no asshole rule, right. In their company, like if you start doing, if you start being the jerk at work, so to speak, obviously these are judgmental terms that I, I don't really make use of myself, but they're used in these descriptions. If you start being the jerk at work, well, you'll just get fired and you can't bring in enough money into this company for us to continue to have you be here, you know? Whereas in some companies like, oh wow, you just landed a billion dollar deal. Yeah, you can, you can be abusive to people with your language and you can uh, threaten people and you can treat people like they are uh, in kindergarten, that kind of thing. We'll we'll just let it slide because you're bringing in so much cash. But some companies just say no to all of that, and they and and they then shine, you know, in in their field. For me, living in a state of fear for any of us, I don't know. Maybe some people would disagree with me, but I get it. Like some of us do pretty well under pressure, right? Like there's a certain fear that comes with pressure. Like I don't want to miss the deadline and and look bad and damage my reputation. So therefore, I'm gonna like really pull an all-nighter or whatever I need to do to get this done and get it good. So there's plenty of that around, sure. But living in fear on a, on a bigger scale than that, like I often it's called psychological safety, right? Like I'm, I cannot walk into a meeting at work 
and feel confident that everyone in that meeting is going to be essentially showing respect for each other's humanity. If one of us does something that is messing things up, we're going to get called out and we're going to get asked about why is it we're doing it that way? And there's going to be a discussion and we're going to figure out what needs to change. But we're not going to start getting ridiculed and put down and, and like put through an experience of essentially bullying or something like that. Like That's just not going to happen in this place where I work. So that's cool. Like I know that I haven't got to deal with that. I'm sometimes going to have to deal with constructive feedback and, and stuff and, and be ready to be engaging with uh, continuous improvement and that kind of thing. But but I don't have to worry about my kind of psychological well-being, my emotional well-being in this place. And as soon as you reverse that and have it be that lots of people or even a singular person is now fearful of that kind of stuff happening, shaming, blaming, guilt, um, without constructive outcomes, people are now seriously on edge. How well are they going to be using their huge brains to generate new ideas and so on when they're feeling so stressed? I don't think the research suggests in, in most cases that people come up with their best creative work when they're scared all the time. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm incorrect about that, but you know, I've coached an awful lot of people in companies and I don't get the feeling from the people that come in and talk to me about their fears that their fear is helping them to, to really contribute everything that they can contribute to the company. I, I don't get that impression. And so. That's a big part of it. And, and the other piece of it, which is slightly different, is that in order for a person to feel shame or guilt, you're probably having to like say some words which kind of land right on top of some self-judgment that they already have, right? There's some way in which they're, they're calling themselves bad or wrong or inadequate or they've got the imposter syndrome, I shouldn't be here, someone's going to find me out any time that that I'm actually incompetent and I shouldn't be here. And then you say something to, do, to them that kind of reinforces that idea. That's a really powerful thing that happens in a person's nervous system when you do that. And they can go into something like just a, a super depleted state emotionally where they, they drop into depression or self-loathing or something like that. And that's a place where it's all they can do now to just continue to sit at their desk. Their actual productivity is going to be awful like the skill with which they're using their their talents is going to be hugely diminished by that and so you know this is rife in a lot of workplaces and it's it's just not the best way to be doing business and i hope very much that things like uh, the frederick lalu book reinventing organizations the things being described in books of that sort uh, and the and the work of people like raj sasodia talking about conscious capitalism and so on. I very much hope that those ways of of interacting, which are so in harmony with nonviolent communication, are really coming online more and more in spite of yeah. uh, the way things seem, because I believe that that will allow just a, a way more creativity part of the human race, including the creativity that we need, not just to, you know, create another photo sharing app, but, uh, you know, the creativity that we need to to change some of the apparently huge issues that are going on around the planet, right, with climate change and everything else. Yeah, so I have uh, there are two related questions. One is that if humans are, you know, naturally good, you know, shame, blame, and guilt is not uh, the way to motivate people. Why do we, why do, why do we deploy those those tools so often? And the second related question is: Would you say that 
you know, capitalism was invented or at least theorized with the underlying principle that, hey, people act in their self-interest. So we're going to make a system in which everyone acts in their self-interest and it becomes a better system. And I wonder if NBC is sort of doing it in, in a similar way where you have different underlying principles, which is, you know, humans are other interested and we're going to make a language that makes it easier for people to contribute to other people's well-being uh, as, as part of their natural state. I'm enjoying the scale and the scope of your questions, Eric. <laughs> um, not, <laughs> not everyone's ever interviewed me as asked uh, questions on quite this uh, scale, you know, but both. It's both things at once. We, we cannot pretend that no one is basically looking out for the, their own self-interest and doesn't really particularly care about your well-being or mine. We can't pretend that that's not happening. Of course, there are people who are doing just that. I mean, recent documentary I watched on, on psychopathy, you know, psychopaths. I was curious to learn more about what psychologists had to say about that whole uh, human experience. And they were saying there's a lot of people who are diagnosed with psychopaths, extremely successful in business. They're not in prison. You know, some of them are in prison for having murdered people. Others of them are not in prison for anything, and they're in business, and they, they wreak havoc on people's nervous systems around them, but they also bring in tons of money, that kind of idea. So, of course, that kind of thing is going on, and it's not just with people who are diagnosed with psychopathic either. And the stuff that maybe doesn't make it into the news is also happening, right? The kind of neighborhood garden that some local person with no money just sets up and starts like teaching local kids in a really rough area of, of a city, like how to grow things and then to taste food that's literally just been picked and that kind of stuff. And they, and they just scrape together some cash and people put their hands in their pockets and, you know, church collections and stuff, and they just make it work, you know, and the local teens do not go in and like trash it because their little brother or sister is, is going there, you know, and learning or something. So there's lots and lots of stories of that sort around the world. And there are some magazines uh, and online outlets that, that kind of describe that stuff, right? So clearly that's a different, that's a whole different mindset going on in that case. So both of them are happening. And who knows what the proportions are? Some people who are maybe have a bleak outlook and are pessimistic say, oh, no, it's mainly humans are mainly just self-serving and you know, survival of the fittest and all that kind of thing. And then other people who, who have a different view are like, well, actually, you know, the survival of the fittest thing doesn't really describe everything. And within nature, there's all sorts of symbiotic relationships and collaborations. And, and uh, you even get uh, certain creatures helping each other out, you know, like the, I don't know, the elephant that comes in and chases the lions away from the antelope and that kind of thing. Check it out. It's on YouTube. So we, we have that going on too, right? And and the NVC suggestion is, and if you're, you know, that people do love, as you've said already, uh, people love contributing to each other. And I, I won't say, therefore, all people love contributing to each other, but an awful lot of people love contributing to each other, including the men that I was working with in San Quentin and other men that I've worked with who were recently released in prison, that kind of thing. But only if they get to do so from a place of, self-respect and empowerment and a sense of choice about doing so you know not being forced like indentured servitude or something I'm, I'm contributing to you because i have to but like having the opportunity to give to give their talents to give what they have to give that brings a lot of joy to people and so that if we can create structures which more and more give people those opportunities 
then it's amazing how willing people are to go the extra mile, you know, and, and to do what needs to be done. And it comes with a completely different level of, of uh, enthusiasm and willingness and, and determination and collaboration and camaraderie and team, you know, uh, because people are choosing to do it rather than feeling like they're being forced. One of the reasons uh, people have conflict among many others is sort of, you know, uh, jealousy or sort of zero sum thinking or, or feeling like they're, you know, competing over a small number of resources. And sometimes that, that, that's true, obviously. But how, how does NBC approach, I guess, jealousy and, and, you know, zero sum versus positive sum, some thinking or envy? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I'll be quoting Marshall Rosen. And of course, you know, NBC is like thousands or tens of thousands of trainers <laughs> around 70 different countries, I think now. So I don't pretend to be speaking on anyone's behalf um, explicitly, right? But just my own thoughts on this. Jealousy is a feeling that I'm having and it's, and it's a mixture of things, actually, like this fear mixed in there. There's pain in there. I, I see that you have something that I wish that I had, say. And correct me if I'm using the word jealousy rather than envy, but either way. So, and I want that and I fear that I will never have that. And I'm in pain about the fact that I don't have it. And I'm in fear about not having it. Money, you know, I can't make my rent and you own 13 mansions or whatever it might be. And rather than just telling myself the truth about this, like, what is this jealousy trying to tell me? Like, what am I actually motivated by here? Oh, well, you know, I want, I want a chance to just make a living. I want a chance to, to give what I've got to give and have family and all this kind of stuff. And right now I can't figure out how to do that because I'm just too impoverished and I'm alone or whatever it might be. Or, you know, you've, you're dating the woman that I wish that I was dating, you know, and I'm single right now. And I, so there's that kind of thing, jealousy happening there. And if I can just say, oh yeah, okay, jealousy, that's what's happening here. I'm jealous. Like I, I, I think I know what you're experiencing. I see that you're driving a Lamborghini and so on, but I think I know that what you're experiencing. I think that you're having this great life, that you're overjoyed and happy and so on. I see what you've got or who you're dating, and I make up a story about it, and I want to be in that situation that I'm saying that you're in. But I don't know you. I haven't spoken to you. I haven't looked into your eyes, maybe, like, I don't really know what's going on with you. I'm just creating a story about you. I also don't know what my life would actually be like if I suddenly had all the things that you have. Like, this is just uh, guesswork on my part. So now I'm starting to just do truth-telling. Like, so much of this is just truth-telling. Like, what do I actually know? Oh, I, I know that there's you and you're sitting in a Lamborghini and, and there's a woman next to you. Okay, that's what I know. You know, I assume that's your partner. But do I know that you're happy do i know that i would be more happy if i was in your situation uh, do i actually want what you got or do i just want to have the money for rent you know and to kind of continue kicking back and and lying around in the park with my friends most of the time you know you're working 80 hour weeks and I, i'm lying around in the park like do i actually want to give that up i wish that were true sometimes but it's not that i'm lying around in the park for 80 hours <laughs> or whatever. but um so it's just truth telling about about what do I actually know? It's the observation skill. What am I actually seeing? What am I feeling? Pain and fear and whatever else lives underneath envy and jealousy. And what am I really longing for? What are the underlying motivations and needs that are coming up for me? You know, and am I asking for what I could ask for? Not necessarily of you, although who knows, you know, if I come up to you and say, Hey, do you have a job I could do? Maybe you'd give me one, but am I making requests? Am I making requests of myself to maybe spend a few fewer hours in the park? 
and get a part-time job that would give me a bit of a bump from which I might be able to do the next thing. And I'm not pretending there's always a smooth, easy path, path, uh, path, sorry. There's not always a smooth, easy path to whatever it is that I'm wanting. But to simply live in a place of jealousy and kind of have that be the whole story. You've got it. I haven't got it. I want it. Uh, it would make me happy. It's a very incomplete way of looking at things, I think. That, uh, And you only have to, like, read about, you know, the celebrity suicides and drug addiction uh, of, of a non-happy variety quite often that shows that fame and wealth doesn't automatically mean anything for for people's happiness. So you know, I'm curious, you know, you do NBC, you know, you do training both with people in the workplace and people at home. And to simplify a bit, you know, uh, people in their personal relationships and friendships, the goal is the overarching goal is the friendship and re- relationship itself. You know, sometimes you have a kid and stuff, so you have to, you have to, you know, for people with relationships, so you have to, you know, there is sort of output, but at work, it's a clear sort of like, you know, you fiduciary responsibility, and that's the overarching goal for, for many people in the workplace. And people want to have positive relationships in so far, you know, when it's a good in of itself, but they're, they're paid to produce. And I, I guess I'm just curious, like sometimes people, you know, I, I see NBC as you're trying to increase the humanity and, and connection between people. But people in the workplace sometimes ask me, hey, you know, we're already connected. I'm just trying to get that person to produce more. How can NBC help me do that or be better? And if not, I have to let them go. So I guess I'm just curious how you sort of think about the differences between applying NBC at, you know, in personal life versus professional life, if at all. Presumably the, the person who's saying, you know, I'm paying someone to produce, right, is the owner of the company or the CEO or something. something. Yes. And if, and if I'm, if I say to them, okay, so essentially, what you're all about is, is the bottom line and, you know, you're, you're hiring people for the purposes of, of increasing that bottom line, you know, is that, is that it? Like, am I, am I getting you right? And they say, yeah, exactly. That's it. You know, it's business, business is business. And this is before we get into the fact that their business is making uh, poison gas to sell to people in other countries, for example, versus their business is, you know, trying to, trying to solve world hunger or something like that, you know, whichever, one it is like they they say yeah it's just about being successful and and uh, and making the profit or something. Well, it could well be that if that is true for them, certainly I think if their business is making poison gas. I mean, I, I have a a dim recollection of a workshop years ago I was at with Marshall Rosenberg where he was talking about um, this very subject of nonviolent communication in the workplace, and I and I have a vivid recollection. I don't think I've read it anywhere since, but I. Of him saying, if you if your product or service is not life serving, then nonviolent communication will not take a hold in your organization. So, in other words, if your business is basically producing a something which is for killing people, then it's it's pretty unlikely that you know the the spirit of compassion which underlies nonviolent communication is really going to be taking a hold. Because I would venture to suggest that you're employing people who either have managed to switch off their concern for uh, those who are on the receiving end of their product, or they don't have that concern. I mean, uh, I'm assured that psychopaths essentially don't really have that concern, for example, you know. So if people don't have that kind of concern, then how likely is it that they're going to start communicating in a way which is very compassion-based? It doesn't seem particularly likely to me. However, you could be in some other kind of thing where, you know, uh, whatever you you've got an internet service or, or or something of that sort, whatever it is, real estate, whatever it is, 
And yeah, you're trying to make a profit. You're trying to make some money and do well and, and live your dreams, right? So now the nature of the industry is not one that precludes a more human-centered, compassionate way of operating. And yet it still might, might not take a hold because you say things like, for example, oh, yeah, uh, I don't care if someone's known as a hard ass and, and they cause a lot of employee churn and that costs us money, obviously, but, but he brings in way more money than he costs us. So, you know, whatever, uh, people find a job somewhere else. And, okay, maybe they actually end up rather traumatized by what they've experienced or something like that. But so what, you know, like that's, they can get a therapist. So, so now this person, person again, again, if they're running the, the company, the likelihood of what we're talking about here is that it will take a hold in the company in any widespread way, I would say is tiny to non-existent. Another way of saying it that certain thinkers on this put it is that a company, the sort of prevailing consciousness in your company is not going to exceed the level that you have reached yourself. You won't have a company where compassion happens on a level that you don't display it in your own life as a ceo for example or, or empathy or or something very practical like willingness to receive feedback or give feedback even when it's a little bit edgy and it's about something that you want uh, to be changed if you say i'm all about feedback but anyone ever tries to give you feedback finds that you're not receptive to it feedback just will not happen in your company to the extent that you want it to simple as that you're always leading by example. And if you're the CEO, you're probably the biggest example. And people are going to give lip service to other things, but they're not going to really do stuff that's kind of a little bit um, edgy to do without your example of making that important to do, right? So for sure, this is a long-winded way of saying what we're talking about here is not going to automatically take a hold. However, there are increasingly, I think, many leaders within business, within industry, who, and, you know, one place I've heard this discussed, I would say, on uh, Reboot.io, Jerry Colonna's uh, podcast, where he's actually coaching people live and kind of interviewing and coaching people live. And a lot of these people are successful CEOs, and they've reached a moment where they said to themselves, okay, I made a ton of money, and it's not doing it for me. Like, I could make a ton more. I know how to do that, but but somehow it's not filling the hole that I thought it would fill. And I and I, you know, I've been to all the fancy places and I've got all the fancy cars or whatever it might be. But there's something missing for me. What's the thing that's missing? And people start to realize that they can look back at their history of becoming successful. And there's a lot of what I call corpses by the side of the road. You know, it's like people they had to like step on in order to move forward, or they felt they had to step on them, that kind of thing. And they and they start to wonder, like, did I really have to step on those people? Or was there some other way that that could have been done? I'm curious. And they start to hear from other business leaders and industrialists who, who, who do things differently. And now the chance of what we're talking about here, taking a hold in the company, becomes much higher. And then you get these incredible reports, not just on how successful the, the company is, because people just feel more at ease and feel so recognized and just are willing to go the extra mile. And when things turn down, you know, the economy turns down or something like that, and they say, hey, everyone, we've got to like cut everyone's pay by this percentage. Otherwise, we're going to have to let, you know, 100 people go or 1,000 people go or something. You get these things where everyone says, all right, do it. Let's make it work, you know. 
everyone doesn't doesn't just abandon ship um, because they feel like a, a community. They feel like a big village or whatever you want to call it. And that's all out there. Obviously, I'm sure you've come across this stuff as well. So, so yes, it can, it can take a hold. My belief is that slowly it's taking a hold more and more um, and that there are more and more examples of companies that really do have a, a human-centered and care-centered approach. They don't want profit at any cost, and they certainly don't want the profit at the cost of the uh, the biosphere of the planet that we live on, which clearly a lot of companies don't give a lot of regard to, right? Certain kinds of companies not really caring about that. And uh, it's time to care about it, I think. Uh, I know there's plenty of climate change deniers out there, but I'm not one of them. And uh, I think things are shifting in, in very bad ways. And we're in the middle of a mass extinction and, and uh, all sorts of terrible stuff going on. So it's time to make a change in how business is being done. And and I think it's happening, you know, and I love being part of that. Totally. You know, it's interesting. My friend went on a meditation retreat recently. He said that for him, it was sort of you know, preparation for the worst day of his life that hasn't happened yet. And in some senses, among other things, I see NBC is sort of preparation for the toughest conversations that you'll have in your life. And I think, you know, it's tough it, with, with myself and anyone who practices NBC is how do you use this when you need it most, when you're most emotionally, you know, spent or caught up or, or most angry. And, and I know you think a lot about this. It's great, great uh, article on your website called uh, Vegas Baby, uh, but V-A-G-U-S. Uh, and so I'm curious yeah. if you could talk a little bit about just that concept, you know, you, you teach a class on anger, which I've taken, which is fantastic. Um, just unpack a little bit the concept of you know, NVC and when, when we need it most and, and how, to, how to use it. Yeah, I love that you're asking this. And it, this goes back to that idea of self-connection being 90% of the work. You, you know, that, like, uh, was it the, the, uh, above the entrance to the, uh, the, the oracle, the temple at Delphi, somewhere, somewhere in Greece, I guess, in ancient Greece. It has uh, something that translates, I believe, to the words, uh, know thyself, you know, know yourself. yourself. And so that's been upheld there by the uh, intellectuals of the time, right? It's been this high goal. So if you know yourself, you have to be paying attention to yourself. And so if you are paying attention to yourself, you might notice, wow, I can go from being seemingly in a neutral frame of mind to being enraged in in three seconds. And then I start to do things from a place of rage because, you know, rage is a pretty powerful force. It's hard to hard to control what happens then. And then I have serious regret afterwards. There's repercussions, you know, or even maybe I've never worried about it that much because I've always got away with it. But one of these days I might not get away with it, you know, whatever it might be. Knowing that that's true about you is already a step away from it just being true, but you don't even realize it. You've never noticed that you go into a rage in three seconds. Everyone's too scared to tell you. They do a 360 review in your workplace and it comes out pretty good because people are so scared of you that they're not even going to put it uh, in an anonymous 360 or something, right? This can happen. So once you start to say, all right, I've suddenly decided for some reason that I need to start paying attention to myself now and and seeing like what makes me tick and what's true maybe it's some, uh, your partner divorces you or something or one of your kids won't talk to you anymore or uh, you know the company that's been putting up with you for years because you brought in so much money you've had a pretty lean spell this last couple of years and they let you go because you're still costing the company a bunch of money and not bringing it in anymore or something so 
you finally decide to look at yourself. And then you start to realize like, oh, it was never true that I went from neutral to enraged in in three seconds because I'm not neutral right now. I'm sitting here thinking about stuff or talking to a therapist or a coach or someone. And once we start talking about stuff, I realize I'm not really neutral. I'm like, I'm kind of got low level background anger about all sorts of things all of the time. So all that's been happening over these years is it's gone from being kind of buried to suddenly getting vented out of my mouth, you know? And so what is all that stuff that's underneath? And then you get to take an interest in that and figure out the places where you might have had uh, stuff in childhood that traumatized you and uh, whatever else might be going on there. There's a need for truth telling. There's a need for healing of whatever it is that's going on in you sometimes. And, uh, and many other flavors of that, right? So, so if we, if we start talking about anger and if we talk, start talking about the vagus nerve, my understanding of the vagus nerve, people with more knowledge in, in this field than me can, can refine my understanding, but we have the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. One of those systems is colloquially called the fight or flight system. The other one is often called the rest and digest system. And in modern industrial societies, we spend an awful lot longer in the fight or flight mode than is really required. You know, it's like there's no saber-toothed tigers or, or uh, opposing tribes coming at us with spears or whatever it might be. Like We don't need to be in the heightened state of readiness that we actually are a lot of the time. Um, but we sit in traffic or we sit in the boardroom and we're in this kind of ready, we're ready for a fight and we're ready to flee. Or in some cases, we're ready to just freeze and hope that nobody notices us, that kind of thing, depending on where you are in the hierarchy, et cetera, et cetera. And the vagus nerve is the, is the nerve that is largely responsible, as I understand it, for switching your system from parasympathetic to sympathetic and back again. And the vagus nerve can be impaired or less impaired it can be stronger or weaker it can be toned in the same way that you can tone a bicep or something you can do things which actually strengthen its ability to kind of help you stay and rest or and digest for longer you stay more mellow for more of the time you know someone gives you a bit of a sidelong look in a meeting and your nervous system doesn't go into fight or flight whereas it used to because you've strengthened that system and so it's not as kind of trigger happy or whatever now and similarly, when you do go into fight or flight, maybe you're kind of in that place for a while of fighting or fleeing or being on the verge of those things. But with a with a more toned vagus nerve, your system returns itself back to the more rest to the rest and digest kind of uh, system, where everything that your blood chemistry is different, the not the kind of adrenaline and stress hormones and all that kind of stuff. So I'm I'm told that uh, things that you would probably associate with being more chill and more mellow like uh, meditation yoga uh, chanting singing going for a walk in nature those things actually do improve the tone of your vagus nerve your vagal tone some strange things as well like allowing yourself to be colder than you want to be uh, some of the time um, i don't know if i'm talking about like that the ice man you know kind of freezing yourself and getting to be superhuman but even if you just go out without a jacket in san francisco in the evening sometimes because you're only walking 10 blocks and so you're going to be cool with it that actually supposedly does something to help tone your vagus nerve you know you kind of you're withstanding that discomfort and you get better at withstanding it so all of this what is the relevance of this to your question like how to use non-binary communication when you most need it well you know i do teach people as you know like 
attend to your vagus nerve, do your own research and double check my, my ideas on this that I've read, and then just do some things like whatever it might be, meditation or running or whatever kind of seems to contribute to it and see whether or not you actually calm down more quickly. You know, if you're angry in traffic, try, try singing while being angry in traffic and see whether or not your anger goes down and your road rage goes down. Try just doing deep breathing as you're sitting angry in traffic rather than just kind of like uh, screaming obscenities at the windshield or whatever. That, so that's one very kind of physiological thing that you can do, which can make a real difference. It makes you less likely to go off at the, late, uh, at the slightest trigger. And then the larger thing, or I don't know if it's larger, but it's certainly kind of associated as a large thing, is that self-knowledge piece I said before. And that self-knowledge piece is, a, is, you know, I hate to say it, but it's a bit of a practice. Like you're not going to get the sort of changes that are possible by just wanting that to happen. If you know that people complain about you being unpredictable and sometimes very volatile and seeming to take out your stresses, on members of your team in a way that they really don't enjoy and this kind of thing. If you know that you've heard that kind of stuff and you're like, I would love to change that, but I'm too busy, you know, I've got to keep the company going, then, you know, it's not going to change. And you can pay an expensive coach and speak to them every week or something, but I'm not super confident that that's going to change it because you've got to do something and an expensive coach will probably tell you some things to do uh, or any coach. But if you don't do those things, like just paying attention, like, okay, when I, I, I kind of got pretty bad tempered in that, in that meeting today, what was the triggering event? Was it something that someone said in the meeting? Was it something that happened on the way to work? Was it something that my assistant said to me before I even walked into the meeting? Was it something I watched on the news? What was it? And then how was I feeling about it? Was I feeling afraid? Can I tell myself the truth? Yeah, that scared me what I heard. Was I feeling just irritated, annoyed? impatient you know frustrated and what was i wanting as i before i even walked into that meeting what was i actually wanting oh i know i was wanting it to go smoothly because i was feeling on edge and then people started peppering me with questions and like questioning the whole direction we'd agreed on the week before and i just couldn't take it like i was looking for an easy ride in that meeting which often happens and that's not how it went and i just lost it because because what because my anger, my, my emotion is always telling me about whether or not my deeper needs are being met or not met. And so that's what the anger came up strongly to inform me of the fact that I had the circumstances that were happening were very much not what I was wanting. They were opposite to what I was wanting. That's what the anger is for. And as you know from doing the anger series, anger also tells me that the way that I'm thinking is actually counterproductive almost always my anger is telling me that i'm thinking about myself and others in a way that's probably not going to help me to have the experience that i'm looking to have you know me getting enraged with the people in my team today didn't really move us forward it just used a bunch of time that the company is paying for you know and just telling yourself the truth about all those things and then looking for what could be different who do i need to talk to who do I need to uh, do some repair with from what, what just happened? Do I have the courage to do that? If I don't have the courage to do that, where can I get it? Who can I talk to who's a neutral, safe person who I consider to be wise and, and who can help me out with this? You know, that kind of idea. So you're just sort of telling yourself the truth and starting to ask the questions and admitting to yourself that you're a vulnerable human being who doesn't have all of the answers and could use some kind of support 
with the emotional reality of being a human being like that. And that, that is the big thing on making it more likely that you will find effective communication skills when you need them. Because if you don't have a basis, if you think about it, if you don't have a basis, a foundation of knowing what is going on with you, then how can you communicate that with anyone else? And if you don't have a basis of actually caring about yourself and having compassion for yourself, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to have care about someone else or compassion for someone else. If you don't find respect for yourself, it's harder to respect others. Um, if your own sense of self-worth, in spite of your apparent success, is actually low, it makes it harder for you to see the worth in others. And there are variations on that. Obviously, there are people who see the worth in others, but they can't see it in themselves, and that puts them on edge and, and so on and so forth. But either way, self-knowledge gets you clear on what's going on with you. It gives you a much stronger platform from which to sort of communicate honestly about what's going on with you. And that's just, it starts just shaving off a lot of the sharp edges and the kind of flashpoints in conversation. Um, just your own awareness. Oh, there's a, there's a possible flashpoint here, but I know what it is. If he says this to me, then I'll, I think I'll get angry. Okay. So if I know that that's likely, what can I do in advance? Is there a call I should make to him first and discuss that little piece before we even get in the meeting like that? So that's my quick version. Love it. What would you say to someone who says, Hey, I don't need sort of NBC communication work, dojo workshop. I, I see a therapist. And I, I'm sort of saying that a little bit deliberately because I think Marshall thought a little bit about the differences between NBC and sort of psychotherapy as we understand it. Is that is that accurate? What are your thoughts there? Well, certainly some of my colleagues in the world of nonviolent communication are therapists. One of them, uh, Ali Miller, she actually uh, leads workshops for therapists sometimes who want to improve their listening ability, if you can believe it, because, you know, not all therapists uh, say, yes, I'm as good a listener as I'm ever going to be. They realize that they could improve at that, and, and Ali is an expert. So, so there, there is an overlap for sure. Marshall, Marshall Rosenberg himself was, was a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, and a professor of psychology, I believe, for a while as well. So I'm not a therapist, so I can't be sure exactly what's going on you know, in the world of therapy. And there's so many different therapies that probably some of them might resemble NBC coaching more than others and so on and so forth. One thing I do know is that sometimes people get referred to me by their therapists. The, the general theme of that is that the therapist says, this sounds like a communication thing. I think you need to build your communication skills. That's not my particular area of expertise. Like I, I understand what the skills are, but I'm not the, the most well-versed in how to teach them to you and help you to practice them and so on. So maybe you should go and see someone uh, like Newt Bailey and, and they can help you with that side of things. And the, and the person continues to see their therapist or couples therapist or whatever it might be, but they come and see me for that part, you know. And then they start to see these, you know, it's, it's they were looking at their inner reality with their therapist and they then find that they need to kind of continue to do that work and look at their inner in order to communicate more effectively. So the two things are very supportive of each other. And that's that's the best I can do, I think, without because of, you know, without being in those therapists offices and, and seeing uh, what happens, I can't be sure. I've spoken to some therapists who've said to me, oh, uh, a lot of what I do is very similar. It's almost like I'm being a, a, a nonviolent communication coach a lot of the time, you know, whereas for others, that wouldn't be the case. And you teach a, uh, a course on anger. What are sort of the biggest misconceptions that people have around anger or what's, what's something you think that 
you know, NBC or your work has to say that could really change people's relationship with, with anger, understanding of anger and how they process it and, and work through it? Well, one thing which comes to mind about anger is the fact of it being like the permissible emotion somehow. Like I'm picturing the scene of the of the man who who says to his his partner, "Oh, you're so you're so oversensitive, and you're just too emotional all the time. You're so emotional, you know." And when she says to him, "How do you feel about what's been going on at work?" He says, "I don't feel anything about it. You know, it's like I'm not like you. I'm not having feelings all the time. Like that stuff's just not necessary." And yet, anger is something that he displays on a regular basis. Maybe right? I'm just picturing a scene here. Right? Is it one a real scene that I've come across? plentiful times but so anger is a feeling that he has frequently that's an emotion and not only is it an emotion but a little bit of investigation shows you that it coincides with other emotions like anger arises on a basis of pain uh, fear powerlessness and passion actually people get angry about what they're passionate about and so underneath the anger are these other emotions and yet someone can can both have this sort of thing where anger is the only permissible emotion because, yeah, of course it's okay that I'm angry because you're being so unreasonable. You know, that's okay. Um, but not only is it the only permissible one, it's like it's the one that is dem- is kind of displayed and is okay to display, you know, whereas showing that I'm sad or in pain, well, now that's maybe, you know, that's too risky, it's too vulnerable or it's it's not manly enough or... Um, I don't know, maybe it's not womanly enough for some women, who knows, right? It's like, but there's something, it's not something enough. Same with fear, I can't admit to that. And power, sense of powerlessness, the last thing I want to do is admit to the fact that, you know, this guy got promoted over me who used to be under me and you know, I just feel so powerless around him or something. Like, I don't want to admit to that either. And the fact that you know, I'm deeply passionate about something and that something is not working out that's painful too so all of these things can be kind of buried and all that you get to see is the is the anger and so i don't know if that's a misconception so much as a i mean sometimes it's a misconception people literally think that um but for many people it's a sort of it's a way of living that is really inviting closer examination you know and and obviously working with someone like me you get to examine that a little bit more closely finding out what is the anger trying to tell me Another misconception for me about anger is that there's something wrong with anger. It should not be happening. And I don't have that view at all. For me, it's another emotion like joy or sorrow or excitement or dissatisfaction or whatever. And it's trying to tell me something. And anger is trying to tell me it very loudly. You know, like if I get to anger, then clearly whatever it is, is kind of ramped up. The signal is ramped up. I've been ignoring the message. And so the messenger gets a little bit more intense. You know, the entire, I think of anger as a messenger from me to me. So if you frequently get anger, angry and you don't pause afterwards to go, what was that all about? You know, what, what was I trying to tell myself? What other feelings are going on there for me? And what is it that's missing from my life or what was missing from that situation that's probably missing from other areas of my life? Because frequently anger happens when there's some chronically unmet need either uh, or widespread unmet need. You know, like I'd, someone just said something to me today that I interpreted as, Uh, showing a lack of respect and when I look around at my life and my commute and my my family and my extended family and my social group and the church I go to or whatever I don't feel like I'm getting respect in any of those places you know and then this person did this little thing today and I just exploded on them 
Well, that anger that came out was not just what the person did. It was telling me about the fact that respect is an unmet need across so many areas of my life that it's really starting to hit critical point, you know. So, yeah, that's that's uh, some of the big stuff for me about anger. You know, it's in, it's indicating that I should be, not should be, but that, that it would be wise for me to look at what my unmet needs are, just not just now, but over time or across other areas of my life. Look at how I'm thinking about the situation. Look at what the other feelings are that are coming along with it once I'm maybe not so willing to admit to that kind of thing. So that's a lot of it. And then the other thing I just say pops into mind is, you know, people say to me, oh, well, you know, if someone's angry, you can't have a useful conversation with them, right? And and I say, no, uh, that's, I wouldn't say that's true. If someone's angry, you can have a very useful conversation with them so long as you remain uh, open and receptive to listen and understand what's going on for them. Then a lot of the time you can actually have a useful conversation because they might even say things when angry are true, but that they wouldn't normally say. So you actually sometimes get breakthroughs in understanding. But if their anger triggers your anger, and so when they're angry, they have no real capacity to listen. And if they, their anger triggers your anger, now you don't have any real capacity to listen. So now you have a conversation with no listeners. And a lot of conversations at this very moment as you and I are speaking are happening on this planet where there's no listeners. Listening isn't really happening. Just angry talking is happening, you know, someone trying to win and someone else trying to win and uh, or at least trying to defend themselves. So, yeah, you can have a useful interaction when one person's angry if the other person's still able to listen with empathy, with focus, with attention, with care about what's important to the angry not kind of dismissing them because they're angry or because they're raising their voice and there's no should there there's no should in this work at all so there's no should that you should listen to a person if they're angry that you should not feel afraid or shut down or angry yourself or something like those things happen too very natural it's not enjoyable to have someone throwing words at you about you or throwing words that are threatening or gestures that are threatening it's perfectly natural to have a tendency to want to move away from that or to fight back, you know, the fight or flight thing again. So when that happens, if you continue with the conversation where you're both angry and neither one of you is really making an effort to listen to the other, and strangely enough, neither one of you is really making an effort to really listen to yourself. You're not paying attention to your observations, feelings, and needs. You're just paying attention to what you think is wrong with the other person. So when that kind of circumstance occurs, which it does a lot, of course, I believe the wise thing to do is to pause as soon as possible and own the reason for pausing, you know, own up to it, show responsibility, say, I am not able to stay in a place of receptive listening to you at this moment. And therefore, I would like to pause and go and figure out what's going on with me so I can come back to this conversation in a more receptive state so I can actually get what's going on for you um, rather than saying I need to pause because you're out of control. Because that just fans the flames, you know, it's like trying to put out a fire by pouring pouring gasoline on it. And, you know, it comes from John Gottman, the academic and therapist who has a thing called the, the Love Lab. And I'm sure I read in one of his books years ago that he just considers this to be completely essential, that people are willing to pause conversations when the conversation is clearly not a useful conversation in which listening is happening, you know. And without it, the chances of intimate relationships working out is small if you don't have that willingness to pause. And uh, you look at like how many companies fail because of founder conflict and you get two founders, neither of whom know how to handle conflict, you know. And so they'll have 
like shouting matches in front of the staff and that kind of thing. I've also seen this. And um, yeah, that's that's not going to work. You know, so pausing is wise. Go and take a breather. Um, go and stand on the balcony and look at the view. Walk around the block. You know, do whatever you need to, to to calm yourself down and then start telling yourself the truth about why you're angry and start, if you're able, wondering about, about what's going on for the other person and then re-enter the conversation from that place. Yeah, and it's interesting. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, I think the biggest way I, I've I found to get people interested in the work is to see its applications to its to people's lives. And you've talked about, earlier in the episode, talking about how it related to your professional life. Can you talk a little bit about how it's been game-changing in your in your personal life? Yeah, I'll step aside and let my girlfriend uh, come up to the microphone <laughs> right now. Then I'll cross my fingers, right? <laughs> um, in my personal life, yeah, I used to, you know, uh, in London, my last words to my partners, I'd walk out. I was, this is when I was a man in my young to mid-20s. And uh, just screaming obscenities at her as I left the apartment in the morning or she'd be doing the same as she left or something. No real self-awareness about where that was coming from. And it was just this force that's playing through me, right, in the way we've been describing. And now, many years later, that's enormously unlikely to happen. And I'm not saying that it's not possible that someone could do or say the right thing to get that out of me. But it's been a long time since anything of that sort has come from me. And I would say that the reason is, as I've described, that I that I have way more sense of what what's troubling me, what I am upset or disappointed about, what I'm what I'm passionate about, what I'm hoping for, um, what I'm stuck on, you know, all these kind of things. It's not a mystery. I'm giving attention, not in a navel-gazing way. I don't sit around constantly talking about myself, or at least I hope not. Again, maybe you need to interview my friends and, and girlfriend. But <laughs> but just in a way of being self-aware and and knowing what's going on here so that if someone says something that, that lands painfully with me, including if that's my partner, then then it's not like a huge work that I have to do in order to figure out what just happened. I was... I was feeling cheerful, and now I'm feeling kind of disgruntled. This happened just last night, actually. And and I could just sit there as we're driving along and and figure it out. Like, oh, I see what happened, yeah. And then we came home and we talked about it. Not in the car, Eric. You know that rule, right? Not, not having intense conversations with people while driving a vehicle which can kill you and other people. It's completely unfair on both of you to do that. So uh, I say to everyone, give up fighting in the car or even having serious, uh, difficult, tense discussions in the car. But anyway, so we, once we got home, we sat down, and very quickly I could name what it was. And thankfully I'm with a partner who has you know, very, 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 very similar ways of engaging about, about conflict and so on. So she sat and listened and reflected on, uh, you know, made sure she was understanding me and kind of gave me her reflections from her point of view. And it was a very pleasant thing. And I, it's interesting because something you said earlier, I can't remember what it was, but you said something like, you know, uh, this can help people kind of deal with conflict better, you know, uh, or something of that sort. And in my mind, I thought, oh, it goes way beyond dealing with conflict. It's like the conversation that you don't want to have. Oh, that's what you said, right? Like it prepares you for the worst conversation you can possibly have or something. And I was thinking, yeah, it prepares you to have this conversation that you think of as being the worst possible conversation you can possibly have. And then it turns it into the 
best possible conversation that you could have. Like people report this all the time, how they're so scared to bring something up with their partner, but they do it in this kind of way we've been discussing or with a, you know, a business partner or whatever. And it really kind of like clears the air. We all know this, I think, from being alive as, as long as we've been. Like we know that sometimes the tough stuff has to be raised. And if you can do it in a way that's compassionate and not finger pointing and not like browbeating and bashing people over the head with your judgments, then it can go amazingly smoothly and just kind of like, yeah, clear the air and, and create a space for amazing new possibilities, right? So, yeah, that's that's my experience and general reduction in reactivity, increase in compassion, uh, decrease in like self-blame, self-judgment, the whole inner critic thing of like just telling myself there's something wrong with me like that, that tends to only happen at 3 a.m. in the morning in London when I'm jet lagged and I've just arrived. Most of the time, you know, I'm paying attention to that too and understanding what that critical voice is trying to tell me is important to me rather than believing that there's something wrong with me or something wrong with others. So my favorite economist and one of my favorite thinkers, Tyler Cowen, has his book sort of talking about how uh, you know, economic growth has been so pivotal to, um, to solving, you know, basic needs across human population of 8 billion people. But in, in, in that there are all these, you know, hierarchical domination structures, basically trying to reconcile and economic growth with NBC, both in terms of, you know, people like Steve Jobs or Travis being CEOs and sort of, you know, ruthless, but then also in terms of, Hey, if all the, if, if it's, if it's all about power with instead of power over, you know, why do we, why do we have these structures? And maybe it's because they work. Like, are there trade-offs between like, you know, great connections with people and great out output, even a little bit? Uh, you're trading off even a little bit. Yeah, I think so. You know, when you when you look at a company now compared with the 1950s, say, and you know, everyone was in a suit uh, in a suit and tie, and you addressed your your boss as sir. Or, or maybe ma'am if your boss was a, a woman, although there were way fewer women who were bosses in as well, right? And so the whole work world, it was about making a profit then too, right? And yet a lot of those structures and requirements have gone. And I think it's in the nature of business, like business realized that the only way you can do well is by uh, making sure everyone wears a suit and a tie and, and calls each other sir, not each other, but calls the boss sir then presumably it would still be in place, right? You understand business a lot better than me, but it seems like somehow it's it's kind of largely gone away, obviously in some kinds of industries more than others, but right. it's largely gone away. So it wasn't a requirement, right? That's what I'm hearing. And if it was a requirement, then people would bring it, Steve Jobs would have brought it back if it was a requirement, you know, <laughs> I, I would imagine. <laughs> And so f that for me is one indicator of, and if you ever watch, I don't know if you watch movies, even movies from the sixties, like mainstream movies where the, you know, the, the revolution that was happening in, in women's rights and civil rights and so on kind of hadn't happened in the, in the movies that you were watching yet. And you look at the way that men speak to women in those movies and, and speak about women. And it's kind of astonishing. Like you wouldn't get away with that now. There'd be a lawsuit or you'd get fired, you know? So change has happened. And I don't think that the change is over yet. It's not like, oh, there was a change from the 50s till now, but but now there's no more change. If you go uh, earlier, a couple of hundred years or something, um, if your boss was a noble, 
probably more recently than 200 years earlier, like if your boss was a nobleman of some sort in a lot of countries, he could kill you on the spot, you know? Like he didn't even need to be your boss or the landowner. He had to just be a noble and you were a peasant. And so you could be skilled on the, pot, on the spot and uh, with no repercussions to the person who killed you, right? So clearly change has been happening. And we're in the process right now of change continuing to happen, I believe. And so Marshall Rosenberg would talk about, I forget the number of years he would put to it, but there's the theory that, you know, in, uh, agriculture rather started, what, 10,000 years ago, something like that. And prior to there being agriculture, there just wasn't really enough spare time to and, and spare energy, as I understand it, and maybe, you know, uh, technologies and so on to rule over large numbers of people. One thing I've read about it is that in your hunter-gatherer tribe, you were hunting and gathering too, and it just kind of didn't work for you to sit around while everyone else was the hunter-gatherer. Somehow, even if it had worked, like that hadn't occurred to anyone yet or something. But I understood it as that like, it just didn't work, really. You, know, you needed to be kind of taking part in the community you were in and hunting and gathering and so on, not being the ruler. And somewhere along the line, after agriculture comes on the scene, there start being certain people who have better land or better luck or they're better farmers or whatever. They start to have bigger surpluses. So now you've started to get trade and now you can become a, a, a wealthy trader. And as someone with wealth, you have stuff to give to others. So now they can give you their efforts in return for that. Right. And so the whole thing starts to come on board of you being able to control the activities of other and that's the way it went, you know. Uh, the same happens in a lot of animal societies too, right? You've got the, the big boss animal and you better watch out if you cross the big boss animal in your in your tribe or your pride or whatever. That's changed over time, you know, like with things like democracy and so on and so forth. And that change continues now. And I, re I referenced it earlier, the reinventing organizations book but if you start reading in there about things like hierarchy and bosses and management and head office and um, firing and hiring and deciding how much everyone gets paid all of those things are done differently you start getting back into that little thing of pods of 12 to 20 people that are kind of self-governing and and they handle everything including like infrastructure stuff and investment stuff and he talks about walking in and, and, and a guy whose job is sweeping up is on the phone to some investment company because they're trying to reinvest a bunch of money. And he's part of the team that's been put, been put on to doing that, you know, because it's an interest of his. So it's a whole different way of of governing. And in no, within that way of governing, as I understand it, there's not as much room to kind of communicate in ways that are ineffective. There's a book I just got, got recently actually called The Cost of uh, the Cost of Bad Behavior, which is all about the actual financial cost to companies of people communicating in these out-of-date ways that would have been commonplace in the 50s, but now just don't fit anymore. Like There's a real cost, financial cost as well. And, and in this new model, you just can't do that because people are all free to move to a different pod. And so if you get one person who's just really hard to be around, hard to deal with, there'll just be a drift fairly uh, rapid drift away from that person and when that person tries to join other pods they'll be told oh no we've got you know you've got too bad reputation so unless you make these changes we don't want you in our pod etc etc so this is you know a way of operating that has been shown to be enormously effective you know it's worked in uh, 
Um, it worked amazingly in a, a, an energy company in America. Supposedly nursing in the Netherlands has been completely transformed by switching to this way of doing things and in a bunch of other industries too. So that's my hope, Eric, is that, is that what I'm reading about that and I'm part of a cohort of other thinkers and, and uh, consultants uh, who are interested in this and we meet every couple of weeks to talk about it because we really want to be part of that change, you know, and just be part of whatever's required because apparently you can, you can achieve the goals of an organization better. In some cases, it's been demonstrated than was done on, in the old hierarchical model. So, so that's, that's my hope. hope. And uh, this, this way of communicating is part of that conflict resolution and coaching is very much a part of that model to help people with the inevitable problems that are going to come up, you know, with people. We, we, uh, we have stuff going on and we trigger each other sometimes and we have disagreements about the best way forward. So all of that's going to continue. But there are so much more effective ways of dealing with it. And perhaps the old fashioned hierarchy is is uh, as we see, we hear about companies with flat, flatter hierarchies and all this kind of thing, and, and uh, have great stuff about how some companies make it so that you can earn more money without becoming a manager, earn the same as a manager, stay in your job, um, because they don't want you to become a manager unless you really want to manage people. They don't want anyone managing people unless it's a person who loves managing people and being involved in that creation of new leaders if you're a fantastic designer and you just want to be a fantastic designer they don't cap your income uh, they make it so you can earn as much as the as the ceo or something you know um without ever becoming a manager and just keep getting better and better at what you're talented at and give the gift you've got so anyway all of these ideas new fantastic ideas and i love you know listening to people like charles eisenstein and rosa sodia and others talking about these things so that's, that's a nice segue into the last question of the uh, of the interview, which is basically, you know, I'm trying to, I tried to sort of eliminate some of the reasons that would prevent some people from getting into NBC. And one of them is the name itself. Uh, we started with it, maybe we'll end with it. In terms of some people say nonviolent communication, I'm not violent, you know, I don't, I don't need to read that. I guess, I'm, you know, you, you talked about, you know, preferring a different term in some cases, because nonviolent communication describes what it isn't instead of what it is. But I sort of, you know, how do you think about sort of the ideal name for something like this? And another you know, related question is how can we and people who are interested and people who are listening help popularize, you know, this concept and, and these ideas that are, you know, subtle and somewhat hard to get, but when, when you see it, you can't unsee it. So true. Um, well, you know, Marshall Rosenberg himself, as I said before, so inspired by, by Gandhi, by Martin Luther King. He was born in the thirties. He was there an adult during all of the civil rights stuff and the, the uh, race riots in Detroit and all this kind of thing. So he he was fascinated by the nonviolent response to violence and inspired by that as he started to kind of um, go around the world and observe uh, the people who were just amazing at responding to violence and, and conflict wisely and the people who seemed to just kind of make it bigger and worse in the way that they responded to it, which is the more common way uh, still, I think, and certainly was then. He, he called his system nonviolent communication as a way of sort of honoring those people who were such examples of nonviolence and the, and the effectiveness of nonviolence to bring about change, but wanted to bring that philosophy and way of being into everyday communication, not just within the activist realm and political change realm, still having it there too, but bringing it into, you know, parents and kids, teachers and kids, you know, uh, partners, et cetera and companies and uh, organizations. So 
he later expressed some regret about having chosen that name, not because he didn't want to honor what he was honoring with the name, but because he realized just how many people were confused and put off by the name for the reasons that you just listed. So for that reason, uh, he would sometimes start using the expression compassionate communication and others would start calling it that. And that name as well, nonviolence says what it's not. It doesn't say what it is. So that kind of misses out some things. It confuses people. They say, I'm not an activist. I'm not interested in nonviolence or I'm not violent. So why should I need to care about nonviolent communication? Very confusing. Compassionate communi communication for some people sounds too soft for them, you know, especially all the people who uh, refer to so-called soft skills as soft skills. Um, those people tend to find soft skills hard, which is why they're calling them soft skills. And so the name like compassionate communication, you know, doesn't sit well with them. Right. So I've heard that, you know, there's people in companies who do come, they come in and they do something called productive communication. I don't know if that's still happening, but that was happening at one time. And it was nonviolent communication, just given a different name. I often use the expression connected communication, as you know, because that at least points at my highest goal when I'm talking to anyone, which is to be in connection with them, to understand where they're coming from and to be understood by them about where I'm coming from, even if we're in disagreement, even if we really dislike what each other's saying. So uh, and I'm sure there are other names, too, out there, too collaborative communication i know is one that's been used so yeah it's tricky because the a lot of the books have the words nonviolent communication on them but some do not and there are plenty of books out there you know it's like if you're worried about sharing an, a nonviolent communication book that actually has nonviolent communication in the title there are plenty of other books on it which have different things in the title but i think to be honest in my experience Strange expression, to be honest, isn't it? Because it suggests I'm not being honest until now. But anyway, in my experience, trying to convince people about this work is like trying to convince someone to uh, change their diet, right? If you and your friend both suffer with the same symptoms and ailments and then you change your diet and suddenly your skin's cleared up and you're, you know, you're, 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 you're more in shape and just generally happier and so on and so forth. Then your friend might take an interest in what you've done with your diet. They're like, what? No ice cream, no carrot cake? Uh, okay, I guess I'll do that because I want to be having the, the enjoyment of, of being alive that you're having now, you know? But if you said to them up front, hey, I'm going to do this thing where there's no ice cream and no carrot cake. Do you want to do it with me? They might say, are you kidding? I love ice cream and carrot cake. No way. I'd rather, you know, be unwell but get to eat those things or whatever. So, it's the same with nonviolent communication. If you sort of say, hey, there's this thing called nonviolent communication and it's amazing, the other person's sort of thinking, well, I just saw you saying some stuff to your business partner or your, or your intimate partner last night that, you know, I thought was really out of order. And if you're studying something that's teaching you to do that kind of thing, I'm not interested in it, right? Whereas if they're, and this happened once with a, a couple I was working with, They'd done some sessions with me and, and, uh, and started to, one of them in particular started to like really put attention on self connection. And they were in some, they were in their house and a, a friend was around visiting and something, one of them said something to the other and the other one said something back. And then this friend watched in amazement because she'd known them for years and she just watched what happened next. And afterwards she said to them, I can't believe what I just watched. Like, I know you guys. I've been present with you fighting. You don't care who's around. You just have to fight them whether I'm there or not. 
and you would have been at each other's throats for what you just said to each other earlier. And then it just didn't materialize. And I was waiting for it as usual. I just kind of like put my headphones on when it happens, but it didn't happen. What the hell, you know, what's going on? And then they said to her, oh, you know, we've really started say, taking more seriously this nonviolent communication thing. And we got a coach for a while and, and we are applying some of the skills and, and it's transformed everything. So that's what gets people's interest. And then that people don't particularly care what it's called, you know, you doing it is the much more powerful thing than you talking about it. Um, so I love that you're talking about it to people and, and trying to get people on board. It's when there's a tough situation, a meeting, and things are kind of going a bit uh, in an unpleasant direction. And you're the one who has the skill to, to quote someone whose name I can't remember, um, to, to describe current reality without apportioning blame. You're the person who can do that. Right? And they're like, hold on, it's clearly Jeff's fault, but you're not telling Jeff it's his fault. And yet somehow you've helped to resolve the whole thing. And Jeff has agreed to make a whole bunch of changes, but you never told him that it was all his fault. And come to think of it, you've helped me to realize that it wasn't actually all his fault after all. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Like some of it was me. So but you just did it by doing it, not by saying to everyone, hey, you guys need to immediately, you know, learn nonviolent communication so this doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Totally. I, uh, I think that's a perfect way to, uh, to wrap. In closing, for people who are interested in this, in this work, what, what can they learn more? Obviously, they should you know, read the book, Nonviolent Communication. There's you know, many other, other related books that Marshall wrote and that others wrote. Uh, if they're in San Francisco, please check out uh, you know, Communication Dojo which, Workshops, which is what, what Newt runs, as well as many great articles on, on Newt's website. What, what else, Newt, should we plug for people who, who want to get deeper into it, into your work and to others? Well, certainly with my work, obviously for companies, I've traveled further afield uh, across to New York and other places. So um, that's always a possibility sometimes for, for helping organizations. For, for private individuals, that doesn't tend to be quite as feasible, although there have been one or two exceptions where I've been flown to other places. So yeah, that's, that's what I can offer. And then there's the other thing that is increasingly popular, right? Which is to get coaching over zoom or skype or some other kind of video conferencing which i love doing and have had great success with and it doesn't seem to matter to some people that you know we're not in the same room just like you and i are not right now love to support people in that way uh, the center for nonviolent communication cnbc.org is, is a great resource my original trainers ike lassiter and john kenyon both are going into companies and uh, also, I believe, working with some client, client, private clients too. So they're a great resource. BearNBC.org, Mickey Cashtown, um, also amazing resources and, and so many others. I mean, if you, if you put in the name of your town and, and the words nonviolent communication, nonviolent is all one word, there's a good chance you might find some local folks who can actually, you know, just walk down the street and come and support you. So, uh, yeah, those are a few ideas, and yeah, lots of lots of video on YouTube. Some of it with me in it, um, but Marshall Rosenberg videos and lots of others. So yeah, so many ways to learn and practice, and lots of online courses. I'll be launching I'll be launching an online course myself uh, next year. So yeah, awesome. I I, I love doing, doing this work, and I and I, I love, love seeing the transformation it brings about for people. So that's why I continue to do it after. Uh, nearly 12 years now and I, and I have no plan to stop, you know, until, 
until it's no longer relevant, you know, the, the world transforms. So this is now something that everyone gets taught throughout their schooling. And then people like me doing this kind of work maybe will be barely required, you know. I love that. Uh, and I, I share that, share that passion. So eager to, eager to continue the, the conversation in terms of, in terms of getting more and more people uh, interested in this work. Thank you so much for, for such a great episode. Newt. This has been really, really awesome. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 